0: Dealing with the aftermath of an inland hurricane and exploring a dairy price conundrum that's slashing farmers' incomes. Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a weekly podcast that looks at issues across the country as reported by our editors. I'm Willie Vogt, your host and editorial director for Farm Progress. The images on social media are startling and heartbreaking. A derecho, which is essentially an inland hurricane with high-speed straight-line winds, traveled more than 700 miles across the Midwest. And those winds did what they could to scrub what looked like a record-breaking crop off the books. We check in with Rod Swoboda, editor of Wallace's Farmer, about this derecho and what he's hearing so far. Then we turn to the dairy market, where more history is being made and this time it's pricing history. Farmers are seeing a surprising discount in their milk checks even as prices rise. We explore this in great detail with Chris Torres, editor of American Agriculturist. It's worth a listen because frankly, it's time to take another look at dairy pricing. First, let's check in with Rod Swoboda. Rod, I almost hate to catch up with you. This is quite a tough topic to talk about this week after what happened on Monday. We're recording on Thursday, August. Um, Can you characterize a little bit about what just happened in the state?
1: Well, uh, farmers across a wide swath of central and eastern Iowa are dealing with a, really a heartbreaking aftermath of a rare derecho windstorm that turned what was looking like a, a, going to be a big corn crop and soybean crop uh, into deep losses for uh, many farmers in this area where the uh, windstorm was the worst. This August 10th windstorm flattened the crops in a number of fields and destroyed and damaged barns, machine sheds, uh, livestock buildings, and grain bins. And uh, central and eastern Iowa had winds of up to 100 miles per hour in some places. And basically, this derecho is an inland hurricane with uh, ferocious straight-line winds and and some rain. Uh, I uh, listened to a webinar this afternoon from um, Iowa State University Extension, and they had this state climatologist on there, and he looked at the map, and uh, we did get some rain out of this, but in the driest areas, there's still severe drought. They didn't get very much rain at all.
0: Yeah, it's pretty crazy, and of course, we'd like to recognize that this not only hit Iowa, but it hit eastern Nebraska and also went through into northern Illinois and caused some damage in Illinois as well. Well, this thing, and then it even took rain out east. This was quite the storm.
1: Well, Iowa Secretary of Agriculture Mike Nag has been traveling this damage area in central and east central Iowa the past couple of days. He held a a telephone press conference uh, yesterday late in the afternoon when he got back and he was out looking at fields accompanied by uh, some ISU extension uh, agronomists. So joining Nag on the phone call was ISU's Megan Anderson and the extension agronomist Mark Licht. And Secretary Neg says that no other state along the storm's 770-mile path suffered the level of wind or hail damage that struck an estimated 10 million acres across to Iowa. That's about a third of Iowa's 30 million acres of crops. Acreage is typically half corn, half soybeans in Iowa. Uh, and then he said, you know, the storm started in the South Dakota and Nebraska and then moved across to Iowa into Illinois and Indiana.
0: Yeah, but you guys got the brunt of it. The interesting thing, too, is um, we talk about duration and we talk about it kind of being rare, but Iowa had this in 2011.
1: Was, well I I remember that going over to uh, to uh, Benton County and, and writing about that where they had a big uh, farmer meeting over there and it was I saw I remember those flattened cornfields too
0: flattened cornfields and trees sheared off 20 30 feet in the air that of course is my home part of the country in eastern Iowa and you actually actually profiled a family member of my wife's on the cover of that issue that during that time did the climatologist mention anything about the fact that two of these and less than 10 years apart and i don't ever remember anything like this happening in iowa so is this a a new thing that we're gonna have to worry about
1: well he he mentioned that uh it's not that rare but it's it's rare to have it this big and this wide you know that you have maybe we have oh looking back over the years maybe one or two of these even a year in iowa but it's really small you know very localized part of of one county but uh, this is really rare to have this uh, such a a wide uh, path
0: yeah i know cedar rapids was hit pretty hard as well Uh, i've got family there that still doesn't have power and it's thursday so it's a crazy storm with a with a third of the crop impacted this happens the same week USDA issues a report of what could be a record corn crop obviously that's going to change
1: yes uh, it says uh, Iowa farmers with these damaged crops are, are going to face a lot of headaches trying to harvest this year's crop especially as they try to salvage the flattened corn and nearly every acre of corn is affected in some way or another some fields are flattened some are just leaning over and some plants are snapped off however the agronomists say the soybean plants will recover a lot better than the corn plants and mark lick says the soybean plants around his uh, home there north of ames they're already straightening up in many of these fields so then he said growers will have to decide in the next couple of weeks whether they will try to harvest the corn crop as silage to feed cattle or if it's healthy enough to harvest for grain. And regarding your comment about yields, he said yields for the damaged corn could be maybe 100 to 150 bushels per acre in many of these fields, whereas Iowa's statewide average for corn yield this year was projected by USDA to average 202 bushels per acre prior to the storm. That USDA estimate was based on conditions as of August 1st, prior to this August 10th storm.
0: We'll be interested to see how this is impacted in the September 11th crop report. We talk about flattened crops, we talk about soybeans maybe standing back up, but there's a significant underlying issue that Bryce Knorr dealt with this week on Farm Futures. We lost a lot of infrastructure. We don't have any place to put this corn at harvest.
1: Yeah, there's several grain elevators here in central Iowa that lost uh, a lot of storage capacity. Uh, They had bins damaged, badly damaged by this storm and then on-farm bins also. Of course, the empty bins were the ones that were being cleaned out and going to put these big crops in, and and, uh, those are the ones that were, uh, you know, most susceptible to damage.
0: So I think that's the other issue is when combines start rolling, we may have to take it to the elevator. We may not have a place to put it, which puts pressure on prices no matter what the potential yield is. Anything else that you learned out of this as you've been talking to people? Because this is such a devastating thing to have happen any year, like you said, that looked really good. Uh, any other news you picked up, or any other tactics, or things that farmers should be thinking about?
1: Well, here's—I'll just sum this up here. Yep. The challenge—the challenge is that we'll be getting whatever yield that's in the field into the combine, uh, giving the difficulty of harvesting down corn and tangled stalks, and then the other question that. Uh, is asked is what about the seed? uh, What's this effect going to have on next year's seed corn supply? Because there's a lot of seed corn fields raised in central Iowa and eastern Iowa, east central Iowa, and in northern Illinois too. So the seed companies will be um, looking at this real close. And then the other thing to talk about is is crop insurance. I mean, many farmers will have to turn to crop insurance to cover these losses. But if there's any good news out of this, it's more than 90 percent of Iowa farmers do carry crop insurance. And that's an important safety net.
0: Uh, Well, that's a good thing. And revenue coverage would be nice to have.
1: And the the final thing that I've gotten out of talking to these people is that We won't know the extent of the crop damage until the combines actually roll. But unfortunately, that harvest is going to be slow in these fields. It's going to be a difficult uh, challenge to harvest this down and tangled corn.
0: Well, I appreciate the report, Rod. I'm sorry to hear the news. Um, Keep up watching for it and find out anything you can to share with farmers that can help them out. And that's what we keep doing here at Farm Progress. I've been talking to Rod Swoboda, editor of Wallace's Farmer, and we'll talk to you later. Okay, Rod? Okay, thank you, Willie. Thanks, Rod, we appreciate the insight, and we know you'll be following up on these issues as the season progresses. Next, we talk with Chris Torres. Do you know how the price a dairy farmer gets for milk is determined? You may think you do, but unless you dairy, I'm betting you don't. Give Chris a listen for some fascinating background on the pricing system and a pandemic-caused wrinkle that's hitting farm wallets hard. Chris, it's good to catch up with you out east. Um, How you doing, Willie? I'm good, I'm good. So I think we're going to go right into this and talk a little bit about what's going on in the dairy industry. Obviously, that's a big part of where you are in the country, but something's going wacky with the price. Can you talk me through what that is?
2: Well, there's this old saying, and and if you go on the on the American Farm Bureau website, uh, I believe it goes something along the lines of, "There's only five people in in the world that actually know how dairy products are priced, and four of them are either dead or are lying to you." I don't know if you ever heard that saying, but the current situation around the way dairy is priced is really showing its. I guess you can say, you know, just rearing its ugly head right now. I'm looking at the uh, the current uh pool price announcement for Federal Order 1, which is a Northeast milk marketing area, and the producer price differential is -546 and the month before for June was -5 38. So I guess the way you have to look at this, you have to back up a couple steps and really people just need brief explanation of the way dairy products work. Mm-hmm. And the way this process works is, um, and why we got into this situation was right now you're seeing a real big run on class three, which is cheese. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that because of this pandemic and, and because of the What happened with that shutdown in the spring, a lot of restaurants started opening back up. That was one reason. And then you have CFAP, of course, with the government buying up cheese and all that. And, uh, you know, exports, you know, actually picked up and uh, and you saw a real big run on the cheese price. And and the way it relates to the federal order system is that because of the, the way reports come out in a federal order system, it created a huge gap between when a class one price, which is for fluid dairy, created a. Big gap between when the, the price is reported for fluid dairy and when the price is reported for class three. What they do is they, they use these price surveys for four weeks in a month. They get your price for butter, your, your average price for butter, non fat, dry milk, cheese, and dry whey. Then they break that down to component prices, which are butter fat, protein, other solids, and non fat solids. Those components are what dairy farmers are paid on in most of the federal orders in this country, the only exception being Florida and. Um, I believe Arizona, and they're paid slightly differently. But what happened was that you saw such a huge gap between Class One and Class Three prices that it created the situation where the producer price differential—the producer price differential—is essentially the difference between the component prices at the Class Three price and the difference between that and the Class One price. And usually, Class One is highest because that's usually the uh, the class of the of the entire pool. It's the highest usually. Well, not this time. Class three was higher. And so what happened was that that spit out a producer price differential that was negative. It was record negative here in the Northeast. And what happens is that this will really vary by, by dairy farmer. But, you know, dairy farmers, like I said, they're paid on their components. And what happens is that, you know, when they're when they're paid by their when they're paid on their components, they get that price and it's all lumped together. And then uh, the producer price differential is essentially taken off that check it's something that for dairy farmers when they see something like that because the milk pricing system is so complicated a dairy farmer will look at that and they'll just say i'm hearing all this news about you know cheese prices going through the roof yet i'm seeing this big deduction off my milk check and and it's because of that producer price differential that's happening it's frustrating that's really a basic explanation of how the system works
0: let's put this in perspective though what was the class one price of fluid milk and then what would a (laughs) a farmer really get so was it 18 bucks And I'm getting 12.
2: Yeah. So let's just put it this way. The class one price for fluid milk was 1981. That was class one price in the Northeast is 1981. The class three price was 24.54. Now dairy farmers, they get paid on component prices, butterfat protein, other solids, non fat solids that essentially make up that class three price. So what happens is that the federal milk marketing orders across the country are split into pools. So you know we have a pool here in the Northeast. Fran has one. There's one in France territory up in the Upper Midwest.
0: in Wisconsin hap- area. We need to call for the podcast That's right. winners. That's Fran O'Leary. She's the editor of Wisconsin Agriculturist. Yeah, definitely.
2: So so what happens is that milk in the entire in that entire pool for a given time period, a month, is you know the manufacturers. What they do is they report to the USDA how many product pounds that the farmers are giving to them, and they report all that. And then what the USDA does is they actually come up with a pool price announcement. And and that pool price announcement essentially breaks down the percentages of Class 1 milk, Class 2 milk, which is yogurt, Class 3, which is cheese – class four which is which is way and what happens is is when they put all that together what they do is they is they multiply that by component prices and those component prices will those component prices were varied by class in some ways and uh, and what you get is you get a total classified value in the pool which um, you know is essentially just you're adding up all the pounds that were produced in that particular pool times the price per hundredweight in components you get your total classified value, which in the Northeast, it was $446 million for July 2020. Then what they do is they take the components, butterfat, protein, solids, and they price those at the class three values. And what happens is that that class three value was higher than the total classified value. Because that happens, you know, that essentially, if class three is higher than the total classified value, then what happens is it's going to spit out that producer price differential. It's going to be negative. Usually it's positive, but sometimes it'll be negative And now we're in, we're in record negative territory. So you're asking about class one and uh, and just put it into perspective for you. It's, it's a misconception that producers are paid on strictly a class one price. They're paid on the component price. They're paid on butterfat, protein, other solids, and they're also paid on non-fat solids, and that's all lumped together. That's essentially what they're paid on. So the class one price is there because it's used sort of as a way to uh, to separate how the milk is being utilized in the given pool, and that's used by the USDA and the marketing person at the you know per milk marketing order to come up with um, the total classified value and the total pool value, and then compare those and then come out with your producer price differential.
0: So how does it hit my check? This is how it hits your check.
2: When, when a farmer gets their milk check, they're going to see their component prices, okay? They're going to see how much milk their particular farm actually produced. And the amount of money that they're going to get, the gross pay, they're going, they're going to get is based off how much milk that they actually produced times component prices. So it's going to be because they're going to know based on tests that they're going to take, you know, how much butterfat a farm produced, how much protein a pr- farm produced, how much other solids a farm produced, nonfat solids and all that sort of thing. They're going to get that price. It's sort of going to be like their gross pay. And then if the producer price differential is negative, that comes off their gross pay per hundredweight. And in this case, in in, uh, the Northeast, it was $5.46 came off their paychecks.
0: A hundredweight? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. You're talking hundreds of dollars a day I just lost.
2: Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. Fran O'Leary from Wisconsin Agriculture, so I had an exchange, and we know of at least one farmer where it was a six-figure hit to their dairy check.
2: Oh, absolutely! Oh, I totally believe that.
0: This is huge, and so dairy farmers are trying to figure out, you know, if the class three price is so high, why is there a discount? And it's a challenge.
2: Yeah. And again, it's very complicated, Willie. I mean, you know, and I'm going to write this in an upcoming in an upcoming blog that I'm going to be doing here in about a week or two. The entire system is very, very complicated for anybody. I mean, it took me weeks. It literally took me weeks to go through and actually figure out. Okay, so how do you come up with a class one price? And how do you come up with the class three price? Because those two really are the ones that you have to look for. Those are the two classes that are going to affect your milk price the most, at least here in the Correct. Northeast.
0: Yeah, class and that's one, true two, even two. in Wisconsin, which is the number one cheese
2: state. So absolutely. In Wisconsin, yes. So, you know, how to get those prices is a misnomer as well because, you know, it's confusing. And I'll give you an example of this. Dairy farmers just got their paychecks, they just got what's called their settlement check. And they got this, it's August 12th. So they would have gotten that. They're about to get that, or maybe they have gotten that already. The class one price on that settlement check, $20 and one cent. That's class one price. Now that's going to vary based on how far the dairy producer is away from the, from the place where the milk is actually taken and all that sort of thing from the processor. That's going to vary and and those prices. So that price, the class one price is actually set back on June 17th. It's a three-month process. That class one price was set on June 17th. And the way they came up with that class one price was based off of two weeks of uh, survey prices that the processors gave them because the USDA requires mandatory reporting to make up that class one price. They require mandatory reporting and it comes out. It's called the National Dairy Product Sales Report. It comes out every Friday or Saturday. And what they do for class one is they use use two-week product price averages for butter, nonfat dry milk, Cheese and dry whey. Those product prices that made up the Class One price for this current paycheck that dairy farmers got, that was set all the way back in June 17th. Now your Class Three, which is the important thing, remember, because that's gonna that's gonna break down your components, which is what you're really paid on. Those prices actually came out in early August, and those prices were set on the butter, non-fat dry milk, cheese, and dry whey average prices that were set in July. So it's a three-month process. That's big. When you have that three month process, that's big because you know what? We have seen in this situation the way that this run-on cheese prices is gone, the class one price is sort of like a lagging indicator. You know, it's already two months old. Okay. In this case, for July 2020, which is what dairy farmers got paid on, you know, it's already two months old. But then they're using class three, okay, which is a month later. So, right there, that's an issue. And uh, because, you know, because those class one prices still were not able to keep up with the class three prices. And that's what has led to this producer price differential.
0: So, when you started this conversation, you talked about the Farm Bureau joke that only five people know the price. I don't think anybody knows the price. <laughs> <laughs> just going to go with that it's, for a minute. I it's, think basically it's, that I've had physics classes with less complicated descriptions than what you just gave me over the last 12 minutes.
2: Yeah. And I apologize for the complication, but, you know, it, it really does. It goes to the idea of how complicated the system actually is. It's not an easy thing to understand.
0: Who wins in this pricing scenario? <laughs> tell you, no, really, Chris. I'm not yeah. kidding. This yeah. challenge I've got with this is this is like sort of a guy standing in front of you holding an envelope, and you say, Well, what's the price? And he looks in the envelope and he says, What do you think it should be? And then yeah. you talk to him and he I think it should be 18 bucks. And he looks in there and he goes, Nope, it's not gonna be 18 bucks. That's just kind of the kind of the magic of this situation. For one, I have a serious question for you. I'm in the dairy business. I can lay off risk in the market in the class three price. Mm-hmm. So from a risk management standpoint, what's a dairyman to do if he doesn't know what his price is going to be based on this two-month lag and all the oh fun it's stuff it's going it's on? It's because it's you it's should be able to lay risk off in the commodity market, and apparently you can't.
2: Right. The only thing that they can really affect are um, you know the amounts of butterfat, the amounts of uh, the amounts of butterfat, the amount of protein their cows produce, and all that sort of thing. They're price takers. They're not price makers. They are price takers. Well, this is agriculture.
0: We've always been price takers. That's yeah, no, absolutely.
2: That's there's just there's very few. Willie, I mean, there's very few good answers in terms of what dairy farmers can do in terms of uh, you know um, managing this type of risk. One thing that that really boggles my mind is that when they came out with DMC, the dairy margin coverage. Um, Dairy margin coverage is based on um, it's based on average milk price, and it's also based on this this average of uh, what it costs of the cost to actually make that that milk. And then, you know, when you buy that insurance, you know, if you select a certain amount and it comes in um, comes in below that amount, you get a payment. That program does not account for for this for these sorts of situations. It does not account for this sort of time lag we have in our prices. It just doesn't account for that. The way dairy pricing is, it's just too complicated to account for that, and you know, and, and unfortunately, it presents very few ways for for guys and and girls to uh, you know to manage risk here.
0: This uh, situation that we've got now, that this seems rare. Has this happened before?
2: This is totally. This I, I don't think anybody really ever expected this. I mean, th- this was no. I mean, from from people that I've talked to, from Andy Novakovic, who's a who's a, you know an expert at at Cornell, Mark Stevenson. Th- this definitely is a situation that is um, it's pretty unprecedented. And you know what? And and finally, there is talk and and some positive talk, and I hope that it does happen. You know, there, there's some talk. Farm bureaus now pushing it that since since the dairy since this whole pricing system was introduced about 20 years ago, 2000, there have not been any. Real, There haven't been real changes to the system, except for minor changes here and there.
0: It's worked. That's the problem, Chris. It worked okay until suddenly the world turns upside down, and now we've got cheese, everybody's pantry stocking cheese like they never have before, and it's changed the entire price differential. That, yeah.
2: But that depends on who you're talking to, though. Some people will argue that, well, you know, how can you say that it's worked when we've had so many dairy farms disappear and all that? And that's another issue that's totally complicated. It does beg the question that, you know, is it time to revisit this issue of reforming the federal milk marketing system, make it simpler? And not only that, just to just to make sure these dairy farmers are getting the price prices that they that they should expect. I mean the fact that if you really think about it, the fact that the cheese prices have gone up so high right now, you would assume that dairy farmers would benefit from something like that, Absolutely. and they're not, and it's just – it's it's frustrating. And it just goes back to you know, the way – it just goes back to the way this entire system was originally set up, this entire system – you have to go back all the way to the 1930s to to the way milk prices were actually done all the way back in in those days, and it was it was sort of like the Wild West of milk pricing. You know, it was very cutthroat, from what I understand from reading. It was very cutthroat between processors at that time and dairy farmers, and there was a lot of there was a lot of complaining by dairy farmers that we needed a system that was more fair because processors at that time were were undercutting dairy farmers, weren't giving them fair prices then comes along the federal system, which the entire purpose or the or the foundation of the federal system is to create these pools where you, as much as you can, can ensure that, one, you have essentially supply of milk for everyone, you know, go to grocery stores, and two, that you give a fair price to everyone. You know, it's gotten to the point where, you know, a lot of people are starting to question that. And, you know, and and perhaps here, you know, I, I don't know how quick it's going to happen, but, but perhaps here soon, we're going to have some discussions on on possibly changing how, how the milk price is uh, derived every month.
0: Well, it's definitely got everybody's attention. So yes. it's good, good to talk to you, Chris Torres, with American Agriculturist. I appreciate your insight. And the. I think I'm going to go back and study physics. I'm just going to go with that. <laughs> I liked it better than that milk price discussion. Uh, but anyway, it's good to talk to you, sir. Take care and have a great day. All right. Thanks to Ron Swoboda and Chris Torres for joining me on the podcast this week. It's always good to get some perspective from editors from across the country. Around Farm Progress is our newest podcast looking at agriculture with the help of our national editorial team. But we have other podcasts you'll want to check out. The best way to find them is to visit farmprogress.com forward slash farm hyphen progress hyphen podcasts. They're worth a listen. You've been listening to Around Farm Progress, our weekly look at agriculture across the United States with editors from the Farm Progress team. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional magazines as well as Farm Futures, Beef, National Hog Farmer, and Feedstuffs, and the new Farm Progress virtual experience. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey across the country.
1: I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening.